I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas. Today, we continue our series, The Myth of the Secular, with an anthropologist's account of what she calls the Islamic Revival. In a country like Pakistan, where I grew up, there was this broad sense that secular nationalism was what was going to deliver us from the predicament of our colonial past. And it was only about at the end of 70s, after a good 30 to 40 years of political independence and self-rule, that there came this sense that actually post-colonialism had not really delivered on its promise. That, in fact, something was really lost, something was askew. And increasingly, people turned to both culturally uh, to Islamic uh, idioms and norms, but also increasingly came to invest in Islamic political ideology. In the decades after the Second World War, most Muslim countries were ruled by secular and nationalist ideologies, from Sukarno's Indonesia to Nasser's Egypt to the Shah's Iran. Then, around 1980, there was a sea change. The Iranian Revolution of 1979 is often taken as the watershed. Islam reasserted itself, and is something more than what the secular West had come to understand as religion, merely private belief. It reasserted itself as a way of life, as much political as personal. This Islamic revival, as it's sometimes called, directly challenged one of the axioms of modern social thought, that modernizing societies would inevitably grow more secular as they developed, and the significance of religion would fade. Instead, religion was growing in power and political influence. What was going on? One of the people who's tried to provide an explanation is anthropologist Saba Mahmoud, a professor at the University of California at Berkeley. Her book, The Politics of Piety, grew out of several years of fieldwork in Egypt, where she studied the religious practices of a group of devout Egyptian women and concluded that to really understand these women, she would have to rethink much of what she'd grown up believing. Today on Ideas, Saba Mahmoud talks with David Cayley as we continue our series, The Myth of the Secular. The renewed cultural and political vitality of Islam has been a difficult and disconcerting phenomenon for many Western commentators. The modern West set the religious and the secular, the traditional and the progressive, in opposition to each other. Religion was the scapegoat of the skeptical and rationalist branch of the Enlightenment, a cause supposedly of violence and obscurantism, something to be overcome, or at least consigned to the realm of private opinion. An increase in religion's public power and influence could only be judged reactionary, a step backwards into tradition. Underlying this judgment, which colors a lot of popular commentary on political Islam, is a set of assumptions, often unexamined, about what a religion is, what a modern society is, 
and what the proper place of religion in such a society is. These assumptions derive from the particular experience of the modern West. But in the era of worldwide Western hegemony, they tended to become universal norms. The West defined modernity. Everyone else would inevitably follow the same path sooner or later. This was explicit in the discourse of colonialism and implicit in the talk of international development which dominated the first post-colonial period. With the world divided into developed and developing societies, everyone was assignable to some stage in a universal process. This model is now heavily criticized, but it continues to influence our thinking, often unconsciously, through the categories in which we describe the world. Religion is an example. If we define religion as private belief, as the modern West did, then a religion that understands itself in social and political terms can only appear as an aberration. It's for this reason that a growing number of contemporary thinkers are calling for what has been termed the parochialization of the modern West. That is, the recognition, first, that Europe and its offshoots constitute only one among many possible versions of modernity, and second, that terms which acquired their meaning in the course of Western modernization, like religion or its twin, the secular, cannot simply be applied to other civilizations as if they were timeless and placeless categories. Anthropologist Saba Mahmud belongs to this group of thinkers. Her book, The Politics of Piety, The Islamic Revival, and the feminist subject, is a sustained effort to suspend the categories of Western modernity, including many of her own assumptions, in order to try and understand the religious practices of a group of Egyptian women on their own terms. She talked with me recently from a radio studio in Berkeley, and I asked her first how she got involved in the work that led to this book. She answered, that anthropology had not been her first career, but a field to which she was led by an urgent question. I was an architect. I practiced architecture for four years. And um, then in 1991, after the first Gulf War, I decided to quit architecture and go explore anthropology. It had to do with the fact that I was involved in the protest against the first Gulf War, and I realized as I was engaged in the anti-war movement that there were a number of questions that I really had not uh, resolved for myself, particularly the transformation of the political landscape in many of uh, the Muslim societies. I grew up um, very secular and had always believed in the promise of secularism, and yet Oh, during the late part of the 70s and early 80s, the political center of many Muslim uh, countries came to shift and aligned itself with Islam. And I thought I should go back and think about what that transformation was and how it really challenged my own assumptions about what politics and religion is about. So that's when I uh, went back um, to graduate school and took up an entirely different discipline, namely cultural anthropology. How would you describe the 
the view in which you grew up, i.e., what was it that you had to rethink? Well, the milieu in which I grew up, while people were religious in their own daily practices and so on, there was a fundamental trust and belief in the fact that the conduct of politics had to be waged on purely secular terms. And this meant that even in a, in a country like Pakistan, where I grew up, which was, of course, as you know, was founded as an Islamic state, in the 60s and the 70s, the larger ethos of the place was very, very secular, both on a daily basis, but also on the political level. So, for example, middle classes and the upper middle class emulated Western values, Western ways of living. You would go and pray, you would, for example, fast and so on and so forth. But it didn't really have the sense of commitment as a political identity to the ideology of Islam. So I think that was a very different sensibility than the one that exists right now. A second important difference is that while there were Islamic political parties, there was a robust sense in the generation that I was growing up in. And, you know, I, this is college-going, middle-class people I'm talking about. Of course, the vast majority of Pakistanis did not have that privilege. They came from very poor backgrounds. But even for them, there was this broad sense that secular nationalism was what was going to deliver us from the predicament of our colonial past and the poverty and other sorts of social challenges that existed in the society. And it was only about at the end of 70s, after a good 30 to 40 years of political independence and self-rule, that there came this sense that actually post-colonialism had not really delivered on its promise that, in fact, something was really lost, something was askew. Secular nationalism had been totalitarian. It had often come at the cost of political liberties. Economic situation was not any better. And um, increasingly, people turned to both culturally uh, to Islamic uh, idioms and norms, but also increasingly came to invest in Islamic political ideology. And I think the fundamental shift, at least for South Asia, was the 1979 revolution in Iran and the overthrow of the Shah and the success of the clerical regime at the time. Saba Mahmud wanted to understand this turn or return to Islam. She concluded, as she said a moment ago, that cultural anthropology provided the most promising disciplinary framework for her investigation. She'd begun in political science, where she did a master's degree, but ended up feeling that political science was, in her words, too Eurocentric, too focused on a purely European tradition of political thinkers. Anthropology seemed to offer wider, more open horizons. By the mid-1990s, she was ready to undertake her fieldwork. I thought it would be best if I actually focused my energies on the Middle East, particularly Egypt. I'm not from that part of the world, but I thought it would be useful to actually think about Islamic politics in a country which wasn't just being held hostage to militant forms of Islam, but where Islam as a cultural practice as a broad form of public debate had deep roots 
had a very vibrant public presence. And Egypt certainly fit the bill in that sense. When I first went to Cairo, I was just struck that despite the fact that um, the leading Islamist political organization, Muslim Brotherhood, had been formally banned, the larger cultural presence of Islamic norms was such that it was hard to actually think about any sphere of life without engaging the question of Islamic sensibilities. And so that's when I decided that I would work in Egypt. And that's what my first book was about. The book was The Politics of Piety, the Islamic Revival and the Feminist Subject, published in 2005. It describes the religious practices and attitudes of a group of Egyptian women who were involved in what is variously described as the Women's Piety Movement or the Women's Mosque Movement. In order to understand these women, Saba Mahmood found that she had to entirely rethink the idea of religion, as it has usually been understood in modern societies. So, before questioning her about her work with the Women's Piety Movement, which I'll take up in the second half of the program, I asked her to address some of the theoretical issues that are involved in the study of religion. She spoke first about the common tendency to deal with religion as if it were purely a compensatory phenomenon, the opium of the people, as Karl Marx expressed this idea, something people have turned to only because of their disillusionment with the performance of more secular regimes. The scholarship in Islamic societies often focuses more on the disillusionment and then regards the Islamic revival as nothing but a troubled expression of the disillusionment. There seems to be a hydraulic conception of politics often deployed when when people talk about Islamic politics. There's almost this understanding that Islamic politics is nothing but a displacement of something more fundamental, economic fr- frustration, lack of democracy, the decline of the promise of nationalism, and so on. But I think this is a very incorrect way to think about the rise of Islam and Islamic revival because, first of all, politics, I do not believe, just simply operates on this hydraulic model. You squish something here and it bubbles up in another place. There is a disillusionment, but at the same time, there is a profound attempt to rethink the place of Islam in the making of modern life. And one of the fundamental challenges that Islamic revival throws up to our way of thinking about religion is to say that, in fact, we need to really radically rethink uh, this privatized conception of religiosity. Religion is something you do at home on Sundays in the privacy of home. But that what Islamic revival really forces us to think about, and it certainly forced me to rethink, was this assumption that that religion was something that needed to be sequestered into the interiority and privacy of homes. Religion in modern Western societies has been private in a double sense. It has been practiced in the private space of the home or the church, and it has been understood as an interior or spiritualized belief. This was understood to be a guarantee of the freedom of religion. Each one could believe what he or she liked, and as a condition of civic peace. No one could impose their religion on another. But 
In recent years, a number of scholars have pointed out that this definition leaves out most of what has actually been practiced as religion, both in pre-Reformation Europe and in much of the rest of the world still. One of these scholars, whose work has been crucial to Saba Mahmud, is Talal Assad, a fellow anthropologist. What Talal Assad articulated back in 1992-93 was his thesis that this idea of religion as a set of beliefs expressed in a set of propositions to which an individual gives assent is really a profoundly Protestant conception of religion. It emerges even within European history at a particular period and time, and it posits a profound challenge to other conceptions of religiosity in which religion was not simply a matter of interiority, was not simply a matter of belief, but not only was it profoundly public, I think the more significant element is the way in which the interiority and exteriority of the individual is profoundly interwoven in a way that cannot simply be parsed out on the public and private divide that both European modernity, but particularly Protestant Reformation, makes possible. Now, what's interesting is that uh, Assad called this a secularized conception of religiosity. And I think this was very, very important in my own work, but has become very important in the works of a number of other people. Namely that, first of all, that this secularized conception of religiosity as interior privatized belief, neither is it applicable to the entirety of European Christianity or, for that matter, other religious traditions. But secondly, that this secularized conception of religiosity really forces us to think of the secular and the religious not as distinct and separate, but as interrelated. That, in in fact, secularism is not just simply atheism or the abnegation of religiosity, but what secularism makes possible is a certain modular conception of religiosity. Talal Assad's work has shown that the secular is not the abolition or even the absence of religion. It's a certain placement of religion, a modular conception, Saba Mahmud says, in which religion is a compact and contained phenomenon which can be confined to a private space. This view began with the Protestant Reformation as an attempt to free religious life from the shackles of empty ritualism and ecclesiastical power. But it developed, during the Enlightenment, as a strategy for keeping religion out of public affairs. It also colonized other non-European traditions, as Europe established its government throughout the world. The key factor here, Saba Mahmud says, was power. The Protestant conception of religion was associated with the power and success of the colonizer. It was modern, and this gave it glamour and purchase within other traditions. What's interesting is that this desire for modernity that the Protestant conception of religiosity unleashes in non-Western traditions becomes an internal impetus to religious reform. And this is hard to grasp because, you know, if we stay within this conception that that Protestantism is simply a Western concept and it is brought to bear upon non-Western traditions largely through Western empires or colonialism, we don't really grasp the profound impetus that it brings about 
within these religious traditions from within. And here I think one of the easier ways to think about this is the history of early modern Judaism, because I think this history is much better understood in the Euro-Atlantic societies than perhaps when we when we talk about traditions like Islam or Hinduism and Buddhism. If you think about it, the sort of debate between Reform Judaism and Orthodox Judaism is in part a battle over what form of religion, what conception of religion will become the dominant one, one in which what was known to be orthopraxy or Orthodox Judaism, in which there was a far more emphasis on liturgies, rituals, bodily practices, what in many ways is understood to be traditional Jewish law, whether that was going to have the same kind of importance as the sort of cognitivist understanding of Judaism as private belief, but in which these practices were important but not so significant as to really spell out the heart and the essence of the tradition itself. So a very similar kind of a struggle goes on in Islam, goes on in Hinduism and Buddhism, that what is the proper place of these rituals, these liturgies, these embodied practices? Are they going to be understood as simply symbolic and an expression of the interiority of faith? Or are they going to be actually constructing the faith, the belief, the interiority of the individual? To the extent that you cannot even imagine belief as preceding these acts, in fact, proper belief is produced through these acts. Now, this understanding of religiosity, right, in which there is a profound emphasis on what is very problematically called orthopraxy, has been largely treated as kind of an older, unreflective form of religiosity that needs to be it's a traditionalist, it is it gives rise to fundamentalism, it's uncritical of the practices and the relationship in which they stand into proper the truth of divinity, the truth of scripture and so on. There's a profound modernist prejudice and bias against this form of religiosity. And you see various reformers in various religious traditions taking on the reform of the tradition from within, saying we need to understand these practices as simply symbolic of belief, but not necessary to the production of belief. And certainly in Islam, too, the emphasis on sharia, and here sharia understood not as a state-centered juridical discourse, a set of laws that the state implements, but as a discourse of ethical and moral cultivation, very similar to, to the traditional Jewish law, where how you behave, what you eat, how you eat, how you perform these liturgies, and all of these practices are kind of crucial to producing the right kind of moral, ethical person. It's this kind of religiosity that has been, on the one hand, understood to be simply traditionalist and uncritical, but on the other hand, it is the kind of religiosity that the Islamic revival in places like Egypt and other Muslim countries has been very important and central to reviving, to really putting it back on the, on the social and political landscape of these societies and saying this kind of religiosity was lost to secularism 
to a secular conception of religion, and we must bring it back. And if we do not bring it back, we have really lost something essential about what is Islam. Listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius 159. Today we're continuing our series, The Myth of the Secular. It's presented by David Cayley. Saba Mahmud has been calling the Protestant conception of religion, has been incorporated during the course of modern history within every other tradition and exerts a certain pull within it. This influence, according to Mahmud, has not been due to the superior cogency of this conception, but to the glamour it acquired by association with European colonial power. As Indian scholar Rajiv Bhargava pointed out in an earlier program in this series, India, at the time of its colonization, possessed nothing resembling European religion. There was no church, no authoritative dogma, no clear distinction between religion and philosophy. But under the impress of colonial power, the idea of Hinduism as a religion along European lines soon developed. This is important, from Saba Mahmud's point of view, because it helps to set the context for her studies in Egypt. Islam, in many places, has been trying to understand itself in Western terms. But many people are now returning to an older understanding of religious life. This was the case, for example, with the movement she studied in Egypt. I worked with what is known to be the Islamic revival in Egypt, and Islamic movements are often understood to be political movements. Either they take the form of political parties or militant organizations to try to implement an Islamic form of life through the seizure of the state. While both these aspects of the Islamic movement are important, The political parties are certainly more important than the militant movements, even though they seem to get most of the attention in the Western media. But in fact, the militant movements are quite marginal to Islamic politics. There is another kind of an Islamic movement, a trend within the Islamic movement that has not received adequate attention, and that is the piety movement, or what I gloss as the piety movement in Arabic. It is called the Dawa movement. And it was on this movement that I focused uh, my fieldwork on. And by piety movement, what I mean is a network of informally organized groups, neighborhood groups, non-governmental organizations, charity and welfare organizations and groups that not only provide an entire sort of set of services for the poor and the most vulnerable parts of the of the Muslim society, but more importantly, they also are responsible for having brought about a very different social orientation 
in Muslim societies, a greater adoption of Islamic social mores in all aspects of life, the kind of uh, media that you consume, the places where you send your children for extracurricular activities, in many instances, the what are called to be Islamic schools, which combine a secular education with also a very deep religious education in how to become a pious Muslim in your day-to-day life. And it was in this, on the piety movement that I focused my study on, and I was particularly interested in how the women were running this piety movement, how important they had become to this network of organizations. And what was really stunning to me when I first started to look at the Islamic revival was that whereas the political parties, Islamic political parties certainly had their leadership in the hands of men, the informal piety movement seemed to have an entirely autonomous character uh, in which women were running the show. And so I was particularly interested in that. Why did you choose the term piety? I mean, in modern English, if I were to say you're being rather pious about this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that Absolutely. Wouldn't, that wouldn't be a compliment, whereas perhaps in Arabic it doesn't have that color at all. So obviously you had to choose a word. Yes, exactly. And and I, I did a fair amount of reading at the time on, on the Christian history of piety and certainly this sort of pejorative sense that, oh, you're being very pious or morally superior or did not really quite capture the kind of movement that I was trying to understand. And I and I thought piety was the right term, and I continue to hold on to that. And what was really kind of crucial for me was, as I mentioned earlier, that there was a profound emphasis on outward bodily acts, including, you know, rituals, liturgies, and worship, and the, its relationship to inward belief or one might say, the state of the soul. And the piety movement, and I would say not only in Egypt, but elsewhere as well, posit an inseparable relationship between these outward bodily acts, rituals, liturgies, and worship, and the interiority of the belief. Whereas our tendency and sort of a secularized Protestant conception of religiosity is to think that it's sincere belief that produces these outward practices, Here, the relationships is completely inverted. In fact, it is through these practices that you might come to acquire a state of the soul, the desired state of the soul, the state of being close to God, the state of piety, rather than that inward state producing more outward forms of pious behavior. So what I found so interesting about this reorientation of interiority and exteriority was that, in fact, it had a very long distinguished tradition, both within Islam, but also the other monotheistic tradition that actually harks back to an Aristotelian notion, where there was a sense of a behavioral pedagogy that Aristotle actually talks about in Nicomachean ethics. There's this sense that It's through the continuous doing of certain acts that you actually produce a certain disposition rather than a disposition, a belief that then produces the right kind of acts. You know, it's often referred to in the Aristotelian tradition as a behavioral pedagogy. 
in the sense that the direction between outward bodily acts and subjective interiority is really fundamentally different than what we think in our present-day conception of how sincere beliefs produce the right kind of acts. Admiration for Aristotle was something that the Christian and Muslim civilizations once had in common. In fact, it was largely through the 12th century Islamic scholar Averroes that thinkers like Thomas Aquinas became acquainted with the Greek philosopher. Averroes called Aristotle the exemplar of intellectual perfection, his teaching the supreme truth. To Aquinas, Aristotle was simply the philosopher, unnecessary even to name. But modern Europe turned its back on Aristotle and his teaching that virtues are trained dispositions, bodily habits acquired through long practice. The most influential moral philosopher of the modern West was Immanuel Kant, who argued that we act well as the result of an inward disposition, a tuning of the mind and the will to the universal moral law. For Kant, you act morally despite one's inclinations. And in fact, if one simply acts morally because of one's inclination for Kant, that is not a properly moral act. And what it replaces is this other Aristotelian tradition in which you actually cultivate a disposition, a set of habits, so that you act morally because of those dispositions, because of those habits, rather than despite it. And I think this is a very, very crucial shift. Of course, I don't think uh, that the Aristotelian conception completely disappears. It continues to live in various ways, in various traditions, and we have that notion with us, for example, in a number of artistic situations, for example, whether one comes to, how one comes to play an instrument. You only come to play an instrument through continuing to pl- excel in the instrument. And the excellence of that is not whether you believe in the instrument or not. It is the practice that produces that excellence. Immanuel Kant's moral theory extends what Saba Mahmud has been calling the Protestant conception of religion. And this view, as she said earlier, was implanted in other traditions through colonization and Christian mission. I have sometimes heard it said that the difference between Western and Islamic civilization is that Islam never underwent a reformation. Mahmud's view is that the reformation has become part of every tradition that has come under Western influence, including Islam. This Protestant understanding of religion and the kind of interiorized self that goes with that understanding has actually taken, has also been internalized within Islam, and many of the reformers, liberal reformers within Islam, actually talk about the separation between belief and religious rituals. And there is much literature within Islam now, which goes under the rubric of liberal Islam, but I think it can be glossed in a variety of other ways, that espouses the distinction that actually tries to establish the distinction between mere outward bodily acts versus sincere belief, where the outward bodily acts cannot be regarded as a means to acquiring the belief, but are actually symbolic markers of that belief. Salva Mahmud has laid out two views of religion. 
one in which the practices of religion merely symbolize pre-existing inner states, and another older view in which religious practices play a much more constructive role, in which religion is as much a matter of how one walks and talks and sits as it is of spiritual intuition. These two views, she says, can be seen at play in discussions about the place of the veil in Islam. She uses the term veil in a general sense that takes in all head coverings, like the familiar hijab or headscarf, and not just the relatively rare veiling of the whole face. When I was working in uh, Egypt with the piety movement, there were at least two very distinct conceptions of the veil. On the one hand, the veil was understood to be nothing other than the marker of the identity of a Muslim. And in another understanding, it was understood to be God's command. Now, but the God's command, when the veil was understood to be God's command, it was not just simply a straightforward issue that you just simply, God says so, and therefore I veil. Yes, you you do that. But that's not the end. The end towards which the act of veiling wants to be constantly geared towards is to produce the kind of pious interiority that the veil should embody. In other words, the veil is on the one hand both the means to be a pious self and it is also a marker of it. And so the the status of the body in that, the body is not just an expression or a symbolic marker of what's going on inside, but it is actually the very medium through which that state of the soul is produced. Let me give you a very unrelated example, which has nothing to do with religion. After I published my book, I received a number of letters, and some of them actually came from practitioners of martial arts. And one of them actually captured the sense of what is at stake about the body and interiority and exteriority really well. He wrote to me that people practice Taekwondo for a variety of different reasons. Some want to get stronger, other pursue it to learn self-defense, and yet others want to simply enact a Bruce Lee fantasy. But he says over time, some practitioners of martial arts, taekwondo and so on, come to realize that there are goods internal to the martial arts tradition that are beyond any such ends, ends that can be achieved through other means. So you can become strong by working in a gym, but you happen to select taekwondo. Or you can enact Bruce Lee fantasy in in a different way. But there are goals that are internal to the practice itself. And what he wrote to me was that this realization often changes one's relationship to the practice itself. And he says that once he grasped this idea from within his own practice of martial arts, he was able to understand what was at stake when I was talking about the veil or when I was talking about, about piety in these ways. So in other words, what I want to suggest is that the argument within many Muslim societies about what is the veil, what is its proper place, can be understood far more productively by thinking about different conceptions of religiosity and therefore very contrastive understandings of the body and personhood that these notions of religiosity embed within them. In other words, 
once I began to look at these debates in these terms, it was very clear to me this was not simply about the minutia of bodily practices. It was about something far more fundamental, about what is the kind of person that is going to be produced in the making of this kind of religiosity? What is the proper role of the body in being a moral and ethical person? These women that you came to know through the piety movement and that I came to like and admire through your book, uh, <laughs> were they a challenge to you, to the conception you had and, and brought to it? Absolutely. It was very difficult for me initially to start working with the piety movement, with this network of women. When I first started to work with them and with all their emphasis on the kinds of practices that I'm talking about, I really could not see the relevance of this to any conception of religion that I held to be normative or central in my understanding of what religion should be. I regarded this as an infatuation with the minutia of daily bodily practices and overvaluation on these this minutia of religious prescriptions that really were not fundamental to how religious truth was to be understood. So that was one reason. Another reason was that, of course, many of the conceptions of gender politics and gender relations that they held normative were actually went against my own beliefs and my own much of my own commitments. So it was a profound challenge for me to work with the piety movement, and it was through having to sequester my own objections and coming to, in many ways, challenge and parochialize them that I came to understand the importance of their commitments and their own form of human flourishing that I thought could not be so easily dismissed and cannot so, so easily be understood to simply fall on the wrong side of history, on the wrong side of gender equality question, or on the wrong side of what a modern religious person should be. So it wasn't so much that you changed your own view as that you changed your sense of how many views there can be. If yes, I, I can absolutely. I, put it like I that? mean, yes, I think that's a very, very good way of putting it. I, I would say that what I came to realize was, and I think I write about it, is that I'm not prescribing what they do should be done by everybody else or that they have a better grasp or understanding of many of the questions on issues of feminism, gender equality, and so on, but that the ways in which we judge them to be nothing but the pariahs of modernity, those who are really trying to undercut the, the achievements that modern women have made, is to simply dismiss a whole set of assumptions about who they are and a set of assumptions that our worldview is the best view that is going to produce a more just world. And it, this is not to say that I'm going to now start espousing what they believe. I think that's that would be a mistake. But it is to say that many of the assumptions and judgments by which we understand to them to be nothing but caught in patriarchy are in fact, you know, have more to say about what we regard as important rather than what they regard as important and why they should be taken seriously.
The women that Saba Mahmud got to know in Egypt were not, in any stereotypical sense, traditional. Some were, as she said earlier, running the show within Egypt's network of Islamic welfare organizations. Others were part of what is called the women's mosque movement, in which women have emerged as teachers and prayer leaders within the traditionally more male-centered mosques. But all were concerned with the cultivation of piety, expressed as an attitude of obedience and submission to the will of God. This stance is obviously at odds with feminism, if feminism is understood as women's pursuit of the power of self-determination. And that's one of the reasons why Saba Mahmud's book is subtitled The Islamic Revival and the Feminist Subject. One of the really unsettling parts of my work with the piety movement was this profound questioning of the idea of individual autonomy in the practices of the piety movement. And it was both manifest in the way that religious exemplarity and emulation of exemplary models was lived. Here, one of the ways to make that idea legible to your audience would be to think about forms of Marian Christianity, where there is this sense that you don't just simply worship Mary, but you actually emulate her sense of self, her exemplariness, as a means of becoming a devout Christian. And there, the attempt is to get away from the idea of individual autonomy, the individual will, and to actually subject yourself and submit yourself to an exterior model of exemplary behavior in order to realize your true potential, in order to realize your true self. Now, of course, this notion is anathema to certain conceptions of liberal autonomy and individual will, because particularly for feminists, the assumption is that if you're going to realize these already established models of worship and exemplary behavior, you know, they come wrapped up in certain patriarchal values that actually then sneak into the interiority of of the person and make it impossible for us to decipher between what is a traditional norm and what is the true will of the person, which is kind of essential to the idea of the autonomous subject. And this is certainly when I started to realize the depth of this notion of religiosity, I had to It was very troubling for me for somebody who had actually really come to embrace the ideal of individual autonomy as one of the key ways through which to assert my my right as a woman, my right as a political subject, my right as someone who could take distance from what were social norms and say, this is how I'm going to rebel against them. Sabo Mahmud addresses the dilemma she has laid out here in two ways. First, she devotes a section of her book to the profound questioning of the idea of an autonomous self that has gone on in contemporary philosophy and within certain schools of feminist thought as well. That opens one avenue for dialogue through the humbling recognition that even the most ardent devotees of individual self-determination are still bound and conditioned by their circumstances. Another avenue opens, she says, in the human encounter between people occupying seemingly contradictory positions. 
What I came to realize once I was enmeshed in their life world was that we could not simply judge each other through play cards and little identity cards that we had used to classify each other. That those play cards, those identity cards, those flags that we carry with ourselves to to both identify ourselves and others are really quite inadequate to the complexity of struggles and relationships through which we come to take certain stances. And as you traverse those struggles with other people and they traverse those struggles with you, you come to realize that there are profound ways in which the ethical and moral questions, questions of justice, are profoundly enmeshed in our everyday lives. And the pathways we travel, despite their seeming distinctions and resources in which they are embedded, are actually, once we traverse them, we come to understand the impossibility and and strangeness of those decisions. And that makes us more legible to each other. It doesn't mean that we adopt each other's positions, but we do come to realize that these ethical and moral questions are really very similar, and yet we come to them in, and we solve them in very different ways. Islamic politics, or Islamism as it's sometimes called, has not usually received a favorable press in the West. It violates the secularist principle that religion is supposed to mind its own business and stay out of politics, and that makes it seem illegitimate from the outset. Saba Mahmoud's work on the Islamic revival in Egypt shows that secularism, as it has been understood in the West, simply can't provide an adequate basis for understanding what is going on in the Islamic world. Her book, The Politics of Piety, provides a much more nuanced account in which grounds for dialogue are discernible. This could hardly be more timely, with relations between Islam and the West now frequently characterized in terms of irreconcilable differences, a clash of civilizations, in political scientist Samuel Huntington's famous phrase. But this is a dangerous and misleading way of speaking, in Saba Mahmoud's view. We think too much about differences, she says finally, instead of understanding what we have in common. We are living in a very difficult period where if in the 50s the struggle was cast between the godless communism and the bastion of democratic freedom, then now the struggle is cast between Islamic fundamentalism and Western democracy and freedom. And there is a way in which there's a fundamental civilizational divide that is posited between the Muslim world and the Western world. And I wouldn't argue that, in fact, they are necessarily the same or that there's no differences. I think there are important differences at stake. But I think there are also profound resources that actually beckon us to think of the ways in which these differences are understandable to us. They are part of a vocabulary that Western societies have had for themselves for a considerable period of time. So... 
to take just one example, when I speak of the kind of relationship that many pious Muslims feel towards various kinds of liturgical practices and exemplary models, then I think we might want to think about how very similar conceptions have also existed in Christianity. I gave you an example of Marian Christianity, but also think of the long and rich tradition of the Eucharist and Corpus Christi, or even Eastern Orthodox Christianity, in which where religion was not just simply a matter of belief, it was a matter of a variety of other kinds of practices, but also where these practices of the Eucharist were not simply symbolic, but they were actually made a difference for how people lived and how they perceived their everyday acts their most from the most ordinary to the most devotional of acts. And I think it's really important that we think together about different conceptions of religiosity and what space they open up for ethical and moral life. How do we live those ethical and moral challenges within a shared political present? And I think as long as we continue to ascribe to a sort of a civilizational standoff between Islam and the West, then I think our moment in this history will be all the poorer for it. And it can only lead to more violence from both sides. On Ideas, you've listened to the third episode of The Myth of the Secular. The series continues tomorrow at this time. It was written and presented by David Cayley, with the help of Bernie Lucht, Dave Field, and Liz Nage. You can revisit the program or download a podcast at our website, cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter and find out what's coming up in the show. The executive producer of Ideas is Pam Bertrand, and I'm Paul Kennedy. The news is next on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius 159.